Hey, it's Zach, reminding you to check out Swagoo and Perk, an ESPN podcast hosted by former NFL defensive lineman Marcus Spears. He's Swagoo, if you didn't know. An NBA champion, 2008 Celtics, still never lost a playoff series, fully healthy. Kendrick Perkins, they bring their listeners the latest NBA and NFL news as well as a look inside their lives and career journeys with can't miss conversations. That's Swagoo and Perk. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a Monday morning, and I am high on life and maybe the one beer I had after the last game last night. What an absolutely bonkers weekend in the NBA as the conference semifinals hit the halfway point. And if you wanted a competitive series, this weekend broke exactly right for you with the exception of the very unfortunate John Morant situation in Memphis. Uh, We have 2-2-1 series resuming resuming tonight. And tomorrow, the Dallas Mavericks and Suns are 2-2 after a fantastic weekend for the Mavs. And Joel Embiid is back. Kyle Lowry is also back. I'm not sure that's really great. And the Sixers Heat are 2-2. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. We had what a weekend. We had a fan situation crossing the line with Chris Paul's family in Dallas. We had the Morant injury. We had ref situations in Boston, Milwaukee. We had CP3 having a complete meltdown for two straight games, including fouling out early in the fourth quarter in game four in Dallas. There is just too much to talk about. Chris Herring from Sports Illustrated, best selling author of Blood in the Garden. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. I appreciate you. You have me on, and I'm I'm excited to talk about this last weekend's worth of games. I am wearing a Knicks hat just for you. It hurts me to <laughs> it, it hurts me to put on Knicks apparel. Actually, it doesn't really. I kind of like this hat, but just for you, I'm like I have a Knicks hat on and a Memphis Hustle G League T-shirt on. So I'm just full on NBA fan today. I gotta tell you, man. Uh, you know, people are always really curious to know our fandom. You know, I grew up in Chicago, so I. Grew up a Bulls fan and I think kind of just grew out of it after the Jordan years. Um, certain teams have really good color schemes, and I really do like the the blue and orange for whatever reason. Um, that I'm, I'm really partial to the Miami uh, Vice uniforms uh, when they kind of the pink, the pink and uh, what is it, turquoise that they wear when they do that. I think they've co- I think they did the thing where they, they don't use that copyright one anymore, right? a fake color that they allegedly made up instead of turquoise. I don't know what <laughs> it's got some stupid <laughs> name. Yeah, blue and orange is great. You know what? Here's some hard hitting analysis about not the NBA playoffs. If you have an awesome color scheme like the Knicks, how about you don't f- it up with stupid alternate black jerseys that make it look like it's Halloween 24 seven? Okay, let's get on to the, the let's. <laughs> Series number one resuming tonight, Grizzlies, Warriors, the Warriors with a blowout win in game three that will be remembered for everything but the actual game. It will be remembered for Jordan Poole in a strange collision, whatever, with John Morant kind of, I guess, grabbing John Morant's knee. Morant, according to Taylor Jenkins, is, quote, unlikely to play tonight in game four. My conspiracy theory and I hope this is actually I hope this is true, is that he's actually going to play, but they were saying that in hopes that a potential absence from John Morant would push the league to suspend Jordan Poole just as the league suspended Dylan Brooks. Um, I actually don't think that conspiracy theory is true. And of course, uh, Jordan Poole was not disciplined at all for that. Um, we can talk about the basketball shortly. Uh, Golden State just drove over and around the Grizzlies. Interestingly, Chris, the Warriors had 59 drives 
in that game and 57 in game two. That's their two highest totals of the season in any game back-to-back, and it's not even close. And they're just roasting the Grizzlies on switches. Anytime Steph puts Xavier Tillman in a pick-and-roll, it's bad news for the Grizzlies. Um, And they have totally warped the Grizzlies' shot selection. That's the other story of the series. The Grizzlies were a huge rim, low three team all season long. That's their strength. That has flipped completely on its head. They are taking a ton of threes and almost no shots at the rim, and they cannot win at all that way. But they can't win without job, period. For the series, uh, the Grizzlies are actually plus six with Morant on the floor and minus 32 in 29 minutes with Morant on the bench. That's been a trend all playoffs long. They cannot score without him, particularly with Desmond Bain dealing with a little bit of a back issue. And Jaron Jackson Jr., after exploding in Game 1, has 27 points across Games 2 and 3. No one else is joining the party. So I guess we have to talk about it, Chris. What in zap-rootering the Jordan Poole knee-yank thing uh, what did you see? Because this is one of those things where it really depends. Your interpretation really depends on, I don't know, what mood you're in, what city you're in, where you're from, what team you're a fan of, uh, whether you have had one beer or two beers or zero beers. I don't know. What what did you see? I don't I don't know whether this will come across as controversial. I Maybe because I take a pretty neutral stance on all of this and that at least the way I think is unless – we have a whole, whole, whole lot to go off of with an individual person's history. I don't assume that people are going in with ill intent. Obviously, there are things that would help one team versus another if one player is unavailable, but I don't go in thinking that someone's going after a guy or trying to injure or hurt or re-injure or tweak a guy. So when I saw the play, and obviously when you saw the replay of it, um, to me, the biggest violation in all of this, and this is the part that I was saying maybe is controversial, I actually almost feel like it's a bigger violation to suggest that it's intentional without more to it than what I saw there. Like, I'm, I'm kind of more naturally offended by that in something where Ja appeared to get hurt earlier in the game with that knee. I don't think it was a play that everybody circled and noticed that he was hurt on. It wasn't like it was a drive or, you know, a hard ball that he took. It was a closeout, I think, that he got hurt on and kind of, you know, banged his knee or whatever it was and was kind of hopping around. But I don't know that that's the sort of play that someone's then targeting a guy. Um, So I'm actually kind of more frustrated by that. And, And by the way, I was also kind of, you know, it wasn't an accusation of someone trying to hurt anybody. But earlier in the year when Steve Kerr uh, called out Marcus Smart and said it was a dangerous play, there's just a part of me that doesn't love coaches doing that. And I feel like that's kind of been on the rise this year, whether it's Ja, Taylor Jenkins, Kerr saying what he said about Marcus Smart. Um, You know, the idea that um, I think it was Siakam and Embiid And, you know, the idea of like whether a play was dirty involving that or stuff before that, the game before Embiid actually got hurt by Siakam. I just feel like there's been way more suggestions and kind of semi-accusations of guys trying to hurt each other. And it it, to me, that actually violates a code because I, I think that particularly with how inflamed stuff is right now, you were just talking about the Chris Paul thing. You have a lot of really crazy fans out there. And there's really 
heavily spirited stuff happening within the well, playoffs. Well, I want to I, I talk about that now uh, before because I don't want to forget it. Sure. Chris Paul tweeted after the game about, well, they fine us for talking back to the fans and they can put their hands on our families or whatever. Whatever fan, you, you just – there are just codes of human behavior. That fan should be gone forever. You should never come back. You should never, if, if, if that's true, if that's true, I didn't see the whole video, he's gone forever. Uh, and I actually agree with Chris. And I said this on TV, and then I elaborated it uh, on a podcast with Tim Bontemps after Kyrie flipped off the Celtics fans and got fined. And there was a string of this. Durant talked back to a fan in the front row. Devin Booker talked back to a fan in the front row with a, a profane uh, uh, term used. And I don't think Booker got fined, but Durant did. And my take is like, look, obviously we can't have a league where players are gesticulating obscenely at fans after every inane taunt that they hear. But if a fan, look, you can boo, you can airball, you can you you stink KD, nice shot, blah, blah. That's all basketball stuff. You start getting personal, you start name-calling, you start using language that is just flat-out obscene. And I don't even think, like, an F-bomb is really obscene or an S-bomb. But, like, you go beyond that and you start talking about players on, on a more personal level. I agree with Chris. Like, they should be able to talk back and not get fined. That's my take on that. I, I, within reason, right? If you, if you talk back and you're caught on tape saying something horrible and you approach the fan in a way that could risk a malice in the palace sort of situation, that's different. If you're just yapping, if you're yapping back at fans that are yapping at you, I agree with Chris. I think the league is over-policing that. Let's get, so I, so on, on Morant Poole, to your point, Taylor Jenkins said the Grizzlies have concluded that, that the, the yank is the play on which Morant was injured. I assume that's said in good faith because I know Taylor Jenkins and I and I think he would say that in good faith. I assume that's the conclusion of the Grizzlies medical staff. My reaction to that is, I okay. I mean, I don't know. You mentioned another play that was out there. Like, are we really definitively concluding that? I assume that's said in good faith. I don't know if I if I actually buy that anyone can definitively say that. I saw, I just saw a whole lot of of. I, I don't want to say nothing because it could have tweaked his knee a little bit, but I didn't see any intent. What I saw was in basketball games, limbs are moving around all the time. Bodies are coming together. People are reaching. People are pushing off. People are elbowing. And, like, sometimes you reach. I don't mean to sound dirty. Sometimes you reach and you don't and you don't get the thing that you were reaching for. You get something else. And so I just saw an unfortunate thing. I did not think there was any parallel at all between – that and the Dylan Brooks airborne flagrant on Gary Payton II. I didn't think there was any reason to discipline Jordan Poole for this game. And all I'm hoping for is that my conspiracy theory is correct and that John Morant, who's averaging 38 points per game in this series and shooting 13 of 30 on threes that they're giving him, all I hope is that he's healthy and can go. Because if if he's out, they're not winning tonight, and if they don't win tonight, I just don't see them even with home court winning three straight against the Warriors. I picked the Warriors in six. I just think the Warriors are better. I think their offense is really, really hard to guard. We can talk about that, but that's that's just my take going forward. Is there anything you want to talk about this series, like how the what you saw, how the Grizzlies can adjust tonight with or without Ja? Not really from that standpoint. I'll add one or two more things to just the general point we were talking about, about that play. Um that was largely what I saw too, just as far as it, le- and maybe again, maybe it's me wanting to think that 
you know, Jordan Poole's just reaching for the ball there. It's not easy to just steal the ball from someone. Um, there's a reason that people dribble away from you. There's a reason that Jaws is talented and as skilled as he is. Um, and so it's it's natural to think that you wouldn't necessarily just be able to reach the ball when someone's dribbling it away from you. Um, I thought it was interesting that kind of looking back at the Dylan Brooks play with with Gary Payton, that you notice before that happens that Ja reaches out and grabs Gary Payton's arm to foul him. And I I, I don't even remember, obviously, um, Dylan Brooks got the flagrant, but Ja basically fouled him first by reaching and grabbing his arm when Gary Payton was moving at a pretty high speed. So stuff can happen on any given play. I would actually think there's a, a greater likelihood of someone getting hurt that way, generally speaking. Obviously, if Ja's knee was messed up before, then, you know, again, I, I think there's kind of a lot of stuff just swirling around. But I don't love this uptick. And and, and by the way, I, I was looking back. I'm trying to figure out, is, has there been an uptick in people accusing people of hurting folks? Obviously, the Warriors have been accused of plenty in the past between Draymond. Um, Zaza. I remember the Zaza Peculia play, obviously, uh, with, with uh, Kawhi Leonard a few years ago that was a huge, huge deal at the time. Um, so it, it comes up every year. Uh, Matt, Matthew Delvadova was obviously accused uh, a number of times, and you know whether he was a dirty player, whatever stuff comes up. I understand that, but I, I I'm not as used to hearing validity given to it, or coaches saying it, or frankly, Jaw. And I you know I, I keep in mind that Jaw is a young guy. He's extremely young. Um, it was a little bit surprising to see him tweet that. Uh, like I said, I'll, I'll give him. I wasn't surprised by it, nor was I offended, not offended, nor did I really care about it either way, just because that's a, that's a, you, you, you put a black mark on one of our guys and we as his brothers and his teammates are offended by that characterization of Dylan Brooks. So we're going to fire back under, you know, we're emotional. It's an emotional time. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't really care too much about that. I think you should have kept the tweet up, frankly. You deleted the, the – broke the code. Yeah, I was, at that point, I'm like, you know, especially just because we know how that team is as far as they're going to say what they say and they're going to back up what they do. So, I don't know. I imagine somebody probably got to him and said you should take this down. But either way, I, I don't – in my heart of hearts, I don't think it was intentional. I've, I've been a little bit surprised just by how vocal seemingly so many people and people with and around these teams have been – with regards to kind of suggesting really strongly that stuff is intentional at a time where we don't know that. And and I don't think there's enough of a history built in with these teams, with these players or anything like that to have more validity to it than, than just something that might be a one-off. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of my thought on it. A couple of things that won't matter if Ja doesn't play. Uh, I liked Steve Kerr starting Kaminga and then starting Otto Porter in the pool spot or the, what was the Peyton spot, actually, in in the second half he started Porter. I like that sort of medium-sized Warriors lineup, particularly in this series, because it means that Clay doesn't have to guard the opposing center and Wiggins can still guard Morant. Uh, I, I do wonder if it's, if it's time to not start Tillman anymore because Steph is going at him now every time. Every, if he, every second he's on Draymond Green, it should just be a Steph-Draymond pick-and-roll. And they ran 13 in game three, which is the most in any game in the playoffs. On the other hand, Clark is minus 35. He would be my replacement for Tillman. Is minus 35. 
for the series. And the Grizzlies have actually had success going small, which they can do more easily with Dylan Brooks back tonight with either Jaron Jackson is the only big or Clark is the only big. On the other, other hand, going small, just I just don't think you can beat the Warriors playing their game. I, I think you have to try to play your game um, and, and go from there. And the other thing is the medium-sized lineups, again, they didn't play pool party. The full-on pool party lineup only played a few minutes. They were plus seven and five minutes. But the three guards... Clay, Steph, Poole were plus 24 in 14 minutes in game three. And it's just, they're just really difficult to guard. And they didn't even go to their split actions with Draymond all that often. And then they did. And they had one play where I just felt so bad for the Grizzlies. They posted Draymond. Steph and Poole did the little thing where they come together and split apart. And as that, it was about seven minutes ago in the third quarter. And as that's happening, Clay was coming around to curl around both of them. So they're all three are coming together. If all three of those guys are coming together and Draymond has the ball, I don't know if your best strategy is just to fall over and all three of your defenders just trip and fall and the Warriors get distracted and start laughing at you and don't shoot. Because other than that, you're screwed. Um, and then the a sneaky Draymond thing that I love, Chris, he's so smart. The Grizzlies are like, all right, we can't really defend that. Let's try to front Draymond so that he can't get the ball and they can't go into those actions. The minute you do that, and this is two games in a row, Draymond tells whoever has the ball, drive around me because they're fronting me. And if you get around me, no one's going to be there to help. Just He tells Wiggins, who's a little slow on the update, just drive around me. They're so smart. Look, I think the Grizzlies can stretch this out with Jaw. Without Jaw, they're dead. Let's start. Let's move on unless you have other thoughts to Boston-Milwaukee. Um, did you think it was a shooting foul uh, at the end of the game on Marcus Smart with the Bucks up three? Not completely. Um, again, you know, one of those things where it's kind of eye of the beholder. I was more of the opinion that, look, he was fouled while he was still on the ground. Um, initially my thought was like, he's not even necessarily turned toward the basket watching it. He was turned enough toward the basket to where I think you could make the argument that he was being fouled in the process of trying to shoot or at least preparing to shoot. So, um, I, I think it was kind of a, a bang, bang play and a, you know, a, a call. I get why Celtics fans will complain about it. I was fine with them not calling that a three shot foul. Um, you know, and I was actually happy to see that since they didn't call it a three-shot foul, that Boston had a chance off the rebound. It was one of the best uh, intentional misses I've ever seen at the line at the end of that game. Um, they had a couple chances. Dude, to they had like three. It just kept going. I was like, how many seconds are on the clock? There were how like are they nine seconds this? on a four-second play, right? You know, so I was – Well, speaking you know, of which, it's funny that one of the last – so the last two-minute report said that it was a correct call. I actually still think it's a shooting foul. I also don't really care because it, the game is it, just – there's just so much happening in the game. And by the way, if it, if it is a shooting foul, he's still got to make three. Now, Marcus Smart is an 80% foul shooter, which puts the probability of a three-for-three three trip at, at about a toss-up, 50-50. So, like, it's not automatic that you're going to overtime. And then the Bucks get the ball back. Um, one of the reasons, by the way, that I still think it was shooting – I don't – this is not really one of the reasons, but I do think it was very interesting that the Bucks were like, well, of course – we were going to foul up three. Like, dude, Jalen Brown dribbled around two-point range aimlessly for like four seconds. I don't even know what the hell the Celtics were doing. And you didn't foul him when you could have fouled him to prevent them from getting up a three. So I don't buy that. Uh, but if, speaking of the, how much time, they had that five-second call with Holiday inbounding in the last minute and a half where I was watching it live and thought, boy, that seemed like a long time. 
And then the announcers, Hubie and Dave Pesh, didn't say anything. I was like, well, I guess I just zoned out or something. It must not have been close. And then it was a five-second violation that was not called. Anyway, continue. No, I mean, it, there's there's so much that goes on. And I think that's part of why, to me, that play, I, I'm i fine with them calling it a two-shot foul rather than a three. But as you said, there's so many machinations that go into all of it. Um so many things that were missed anyway in the last couple minutes. Um, and not to mention the fact that, you know, and it, this, this doesn't dictate whether a call should or shouldn't be made or the way a call should be made. But the Celtics had a huge, huge free throw advantage toward the end of the game anyway, which a lot of people have pointed out. Um, like I said, to me, it just would have been two shots and I was okay with it being two shots because he was still on the ground. But the game in general, and I mean, this is a separate thing from what you just asked. I So as you said at the beginning of the podcast, you were in the Knicks hat. I just got done you know, with the book on one of the most physical eras we've ever had, on one of the more physical teams we've seen, maybe the most physical team we've seen over the last 30 years or so in basketball. To me, that was one of the more physical games I've watched in a long, long, long time where multiple plays where guys could have gotten hurt, multiple plays where you're just kind of stunned that no foul was called. Um, some of that's not a criticism necessarily because I think we all say we would rather guys just play than have the refs really inundate everything with foul calls left and right and you know just having a game peppered almost like a staccato sort of game where everything's being called Ooh, staccato. at the same time there were staccato. staccato very nice chris do you play any instruments i i tried to when i was younger I, I thought i wanted to be a violinist which i don't even know if staccato comes into play with that but uh yeah that lasted maybe three weeks four weeks um but no i mean we so we say that we want games to just flow uh <laughs> this was even for me you know who i'm of that uh you know, I'm of that thought process, too, that you want a game to flow. This was just so physical, though, um, where there were so many plays where I didn't see too many instances of guys just stopping because they assumed a call would be made. But uh, there were so many plays that were just so physical where you'd look up and there'd be three and four guys on the ground, um, you know, where someone would just get kind of, I don't know, I'm sure there were flops involved, too. Um, but I, I was just kind of stunned at how physical it was to where maybe too much got let go. and. Um, so that that's that's the one thing that really stands out to me about at least about game three. It was very entertaining to watch, but I almost think they maybe let too much go. Um, and I I think the result of it in some ways is that it felt like, and this is another strong word, these, but like almost felt like vigilante style with some things where a call would get missed, and then it felt like a player would kind of say, "Well, if you're not going to call that, then I'm going to do this." There was that that scramble play where the ball went into the backcourt, Grayson Allen kind of shoved Jason Tatum to the floor. And then on the other end, I think Drew Holiday hits a three and Grant Williams basically hip checks uh, Grayson Allen to the floor, you know, and nothing is called either way with either situation. So I there were times where I watched the game and I think that's kind of what it devolves into to some extent when nothing is called, when there's so many plays where something probably should have been one way or the other. But um it was well, it was still a good, good game to watch, but I don't know that the officiating was great. Well, Giannis backing down Grant Williams, I, I felt like my own chest was about to cave in from the yeah. violence of, the, of those. Of the, and they didn't call it. And Grant Williams stood him up and, like, you know, defended him pretty well. Multiple times on the same play, too, where it's just, like, backing into him two, three times 
where all three of them, all you know, two of them, all three of them could have been called a foul on Giannis, on Grant Williams, on somebody. But that's what I'm saying is there were just so many plays where something could have or maybe should have been called, and there just wasn't anything. So I again, I I, I feel an, enough for Celtics fans that they didn't get that call, at least the three shot call at the end. But there were so to me, it wasn't even that it was like it terribly disadvantaged them. Uh, you know, the calls throughout the game. I felt like the Bucks had plenty of calls too where they rightfully could have looked up and said, how are we not getting this? And I thought it was really interesting um, that John Horst more or less did complain, not really on his team's behalf, but just generally saying that, you know, playoff games deserve to be officiated better than this, um, that the teams deserve to have a, a playoff game officiated better than that. The story of the game really was Jason Tatum, 10 points on four of 19 shooting, and the Bucks. The Bucs did some smart things in this game that Boston will now be ready for. Number one, they stopped having Lopez come too, up too high on the pick and roll, which I mentioned as a potential adjustment last week. And he dropped back. And you could see Tatum and Brown being like, ooh, is, I don't, this is new. And they would get into open space and be a little addled, in part because Wes Matthews is doing an incredible Man. job chasing Tatum over picks. Uh, but Tatum's just got to do better. And also, and also, I loved, and I'm surprised they did it, I kept pointing out in columns and on podcasts that Giannis Portis Lopez, which was fine against the Bulls, was getting smoked against the Celtics. And and part of the reason was Giannis was mostly defending guards instead of his normal position as a big. And they put Portis back on the bench in a reserve role for game three, which frankly, 1-1, I was surprised they did that so fast and it it was smart. Uh, And then Giannis, just an absolute masterpiece. 42 points, 12 rebounds, 8 assists, and a couple of notes on that. Um, They ran 13, I think, Drew, Giannis pick and rolls with Giannis as the screener. That was as many as they ran combined in the first two games. And Boston, you can tell, doesn't want to switch those. And the Bucs are getting good looks, either holiday floaters, lobs to Giannis, offensive rebounds because the Celtics are panicking about Giannis catching a lob and help. And then... Giannis ran 18 pick and rolls as the ball handler, which was his most in the playoffs. And look, it's easy to say you got to get under those instead of switching into matchups that he wants. And I do think Boston, paradoxically, did not switch those pick and rolls with Giannis as the screener and switch too many with him as the ball handler. But that's what great players do. They freak you out. The Celtics are afraid of going under and giving him even an inch of a head start into the paint and he's just he doesn't need big mismatches to eat like Jalen Brown he just roasted Jalen Brown on switches Tatum has no chance Robert Williams has no chance and as the series goes on this is what would scare me for Boston it scares me as someone who picked Boston in six you can see Giannis just getting more comfortable with each individual matchup and just doing what the best player in the series has to do which is just carving his way to big numbers. And I said before the series, if Milwaukee's going to win without Middleton, he's got to be by far the best player. And he was by far the best player in game three. This game tonight, and I don't want to belabor this series because they're playing tonight and they're playing first. This is the biggest game of the playoffs so far. Game four in Milwaukee. Now they'll get bigger after this, but if Milwaukee wins this game and goes up 3-1, it's hard to see Boston, even with home court, even with Middleton out, getting three straight against Giannis. It's it's he's just gonna find another 42 point 15 rebound, nine of twelve at the line, which he was in game three. 
He's going to get one more of those. I don't know if it's hard to say this is a must win for Boston, but it's pretty damn close on the road. And if they win, you know, obviously it's 2-2. They have home court back. I think either of these teams is favored over Philly slash Miami. This is the biggest game of the playoffs to date tonight. Agree or disagree? No, I'll give you that all day long. I don't think it's it's even that close. Um, there are aspects of this that, and I don't know if, if maybe you'd feel differently based on Philly hopping back into the series against Miami and obviously looking worlds better with Joel Embiid, which makes total sense. There are shades of this that feel a lot like um, the Brooklyn-Milwaukee series last year where you felt really good about the fact that whoever wins this is going to come out of the conference despite the fact that it's the semifinal matchup. And based on that, there's a really good chance that whoever we're looking at coming out of this might win the whole thing. Um, and, I, I mean, Milwaukee has, has certainly shown that they're up to the task, even without Middleton there. Um, Boston uh, obviously has shown the ability to, to lock down defensively. At times, I think Giannis is a pretty singular sort of player and doing what he's been able to do, let alone with maybe, you know, without his second best score. Um, so, I, I mean, there's a lot on the line here for for both teams. Whoever loses this is going to feel like, man, like how unfortunate were we, unlucky were we to have this matchup in the second round just because of how good this matchup is. But uh, you have to feel really, really good if you're Milwaukee for having gotten that game. Uh, I think you needed to, quite frankly, you know, for how much pressure is on Boston now, if Milwaukee had lost that game where Tatum shoots that poorly, where Giannis does all that, um, when you got that sort of defensive performance out of Drew and, and Wes Matthews, and, you know, and that was at home for you. If you lose that game, uh, I'll put it this way, in talking with one of my editors, I was like, I'll write off this. And you had the big lead going into the end of the game, too that it took all that stuff happening. It took the huge free throw disadvantage to be in a position to potentially lose that game toward the end, or maybe, you know, or at least have it tied at the very end. So I, I told my editor, I was kind of on weekend duty where like, if something really, really ridiculous happens in this game, I'll write off of it. Um, and the ridiculous outcome for that game in my mind would have been if Milwaukee loses this after having had what, if they weren't double digits, it was very close to double digits. Uh, in the fourth, the fact that Giannis had went, what did you say it was, 42, 13, and eight or whatever? Just a lot, a lot, a lot of A lot of points, a lot of rebounds, a lot of assists. Jason Tatum playing as poorly as he's played in years in a playoff setting. I was going to write off that outcome just because that is a catastrophic loss if you're Milwaukee. It's not a huge deal to go down 2-1, but it's a huge deal to go down 2-1 under those circumstances if you have a lead and your best player plays that well and you hold down Boston's best player that much at home. Um, so, I, you know, to me, it, it's, it's just a monumental game tonight for Boston. They've got to have it. Um, and if you're Milwaukee, it's just a chance to hop into the driver's seat for sure. If Boston wants to regret something from, from that game, I will always look back on Boston's up one with about a minute left, and they missed two straight wide-open threes to potentially go up four and not quite ice the game, but get your win probability to like 90%. And the first of those threes was created off a of Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart pick and roll where they got the switch of Pat Connaughton, I believe, onto Tatum, and he beat him off the dribble and kicked to Jalen Brown. That was one of three Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart pick and rolls they ran the entire game. 
They ran four the flip side the other way. Those are among their fewest in any games. They just lost sight of their easiest path to points is Tatum, whoever Tatum two-man game with whoever has a weak defender on him. They just didn't do enough of that. They've got to do more of that tonight. They've got to attack Portis whenever Portis is on the floor because he's the one that's going to blitz and the Celtics can, can slip and play four on three. And in a matchup that I, I'm keeping an eye on is Robert Williams-Portis because the Bucks like Portis on Time Lord. And they like it in part because although Time Lord's a great passer from the elbows at a standstill, on the move, slipping into four-on-threes with Giannis coming at you at the back line, we saw he passed out of a potential dunk at one point in the game because Giannis freaked him out. Again, that's what great players do. Is he up for that kind of playmaking? And if he's not, that's an interesting thing. But I don't know who the hell is winning this game tonight. Okay, that's enough. Enjoy the games tonight. It's Demon Time on Prize Picks, where you can now win up to 100 times your money. That's right, 100 times your money. With as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Demons and Goblins are the newest and most exciting way to play at Prize Picks. Squares marked with red demons or green goblins get you different payouts. And as always, Prize Picks is really simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. They even offer injury insurance so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. Quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of players and stat types are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Just download the app today and use code LOW for a first deposit match up to $100. That's code LOW on the Prize Picks app for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts, 122 million for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's go to the series that resume on Tuesday. Phoenix, Dallas. I would have bet, thank God I don't bet on sports. I would have bet (laughs) so much money on Phoenix getting a split at least in Dallas after taking a piece of Luka Doncic's soul in Game 2 by hunting him over and over again, a strategy for which the Mavericks and Luka were obviously going to be prepared going back to Dallas. Um, I am just so impressed with the Mavs sweeping at home. Um, Part of it is that Phoenix came back to earth on two-point field goals, they shot like 32% from the mid-range over two games after making basically every single shot um, in the first first like eight games of the playoffs or whatever it was. Phoenix had some bad turnovers. And Chris Paul, 17 points and nine turnovers in two games, fouls out uh, in game four with the game really still in the balance. I think they were down seven when he fouled out of the game, or maybe they were down seven when he committed his fifth foul. By the way, the fifth foul, you had to laugh, didn't you? 
So the fourth foul he gets at the buzzer at halftime, trying to tip in his own miss. And you know what? He got one some, second left. Yeah. He got some criticism for that. I actually, on a visceral human level, kind of liked that he went for it because this this was a really competitive game, and the Suns I think feel like, uh oh, th- these guys can beat us. Like if we're if we're not careful, this this one dude who's tearing us up. If he gets some three-point shooting, now are Dorian Finney-Smith and Davis Bertans going to hit 12 out of 18 from three every game? No. But if this dude gets some three-point shooting and can survive defensively against us, and we could talk about that, they got a chance to beat us. And when Chris threw up that shot before halftime, you could tell he had a path to a potential tip-in. And I, I, in my head, even watching it in real time, I was like, go for it. Go for it. Try to steal these two points. And there was contact. I actually didn't like that call. To me, that's just a play on and move on. I, I didn't like that fourth foul call. I thought that was a BS call. The fifth one, Chris, the fifth one, I, I think the basketball gods have generally been on the side of Chris Paul in his career. The fifth one felt like the basketball gods saying, you've done this, you've done this grifting, this specific type of grifting, where you dribble up the floor, stop, move sideways, yeah. and stick your butt out. You've done that enough. We're not giving it to you. And it's just like, it's one of those moments where I love Chris Paul. I love his game. I love everything about him. I've said this before, dating back to the Oklahoma City meltdown where he tried to trick them into a shooting foul on a, in 2014 in the playoffs on a, on a heave when all he had to do was dribble and get fouled. It's like, just f***ing play, man. Just play. Like, stop trying to outsmart yeah. the game every single second. Just dribble the ball up the court and play basketball, and you're in the game for like 10 more minutes in the second half. Yeah. This will sound bad, and I I don't want to hop too far ahead. Uh, I had that feeling a little bit about Kyle Lowry yesterday, too. Well, he's a a mess. We'll talk about that later. I know we'll get to him, but but just the common thread there being you're already on thin ice. Obviously, with Lowry, it's from a different standpoint health-wise, but – with Chris Paul, obviously after the fact, it's much easier to say you really shouldn't have done that, but he's so smart with the way he approaches and attacks everything that has the potential to get even one more foul toward the bonus that it's like, he, I don't know if maybe he couldn't turn it off in that moment or just think, but it, it was so costly. Um, and obviously the upside there was so minimal that again, it was easy to say that after the fact, but yeah, I, I mean, if you, feel good about Phoenix still in this series so much of it I think has to be rooted in the idea that it's not possible for Chris Paul you would think unless he literally had like an expiration date basketball wise of 37 years and not a minute more that he cannot be worse or less impactful um, than he was in games three and games four I, I, I just I don't even know how it would be possible assuming that he's not hurt or that he doesn't get hurt. Um, the most turnovers he'd ever had in a half, and then obviously the foul out with basically a whole quarter to go. I mean, and that was with Monty Williams sitting him as long as he did, um, you know, for for a, a chunk of time. I got nervous, and I wrote it in my notes. I got nervous when he took the foul on the lob on the first or second Dallas possession of the game. I just, like, he broke it up. I'd have to rewatch it to see how much of a cinch it was going to be for Dallas if he didn't do that. I just don't like my second best or best. He's not the best player on the team anymore. I think Devin clearly was this year. But regardless, 
I just don't like giving a foul a minute into the game. I just it just because then you got you get another one quickly and you're like you got to sit. I just didn't like that foul, especially. And I mean, like we've been watching guys all playoffs so far end up with three fouls in the first quarter, four fouls in the first half because they're all playing 45 minutes a game. You know, when they're that important, if they can manage it, they're all playing longer minutes. The games get more physical, as we were just saying about the the Milwaukee Boston series. You're bound to potentially be in foul trouble. And I think one of the biggest takeaways, and they're going to have to work around it if somehow Chris Paul gets in more foul trouble or is struggling with anything else injury-wise, whatever, um, it's not just him. I mean, obviously he has a huge impact on the team, but DeAndre Ayton in particular plays so heavily off what he's doing. And I think one of the downfalls for Phoenix has been over the last two games has been that he has not looked comfortable, um, all that comfortable offensively unless he's putting in a putback uh, when Chris Paul's been off the floor, which that has not always been the case for him during the regular season. He was fine when Chris Paul wasn't out there, but um, you really would have liked, and obviously as we're talking about him being in a contract year and everything else, you really would have liked to have seen him do more and be more assertive um, offensively when Chris Paul couldn't be on the floor um, because otherwise you're, you're, you know definitively that you're asking a whole, whole lot of Devin Booker, not just uh, generally, but as, as a point guard um, when Chris Paul's not out there for those minutes. So it, it was just a, a really rough go, which doesn't even speak to defensively what was happening for Phoenix. Well, let's talk about Aiton for a second, because right here in black letters with highlight on it, it says Aiton needs to play with force in my notes. 13 <laughs> points okay. a game since game one. 8 of 11 from the foul line for the entire series. So two free throws a game. And just, I, he just didn't look like the same guy after game one. He yep. just If he gets Maxi Kleba, either put his ass in the basket or kick the ball out. If You t- you can't settle every single, I know you got a great touch. Your touch has been on point up until game two of this series. You're making mid-range shots. You're making pogo stick floaters, all that. Put the dude in the basket, draw a double team, get to the line, something. He's just not playing with force. And one of the reasons I think that's important is because I actually think when Phoenix just keeps their offense pretty simple, they've had a lot of success against the Mavs. So, like, just Booker, Aiton, Paul, Aiton, those pick and rolls are a problem for the Mavs. Uh, they blitzed a little bit to try and take the ball out of the guards' hands, and and the Suns proved up to that task. Whether they were blitzing with Luka or hedging with Luka when they were trying to hunt down Luka, the Suns would slip into open space and Cam Johnson, Mikhail Bridges, even Aiton would make enough plays to either finish or alley-oop or kick to a three, kick to a drive and a closeout. They were making plays. And then I thought down the stretch of the game, Dallas went back to a drop defense with Kleba at center and played those plays two on two really, really well. Kleba's defense was awesome. Dallas moving away from Powell has been the right call. He only played 10 minutes in game four. He's minus 26 for the series. Um, but yeah, I agree with you on Aiden. Before we get to Phoenix defense, what did you see from the Mavs defense? It especially in terms of they knew obviously the Suns are going to try to put Luka in a lot of stuff. What did you see from the Mavs doing well in general and covering for Luka? Um I I just think a lot of it was just a a really a readiness with a lot of it. Um the fact that Frankly, Finney Smith, um, who really, when you look at that defense, um, a lot of the times you're looking at him as being the main guy and the guy that really deserves the credit for a lot of it. But um, 
it's the fact that without Chris Paul there, you are going to try to load up. And I think that's kind of where you're testing Aiton to some extent. Like, is he going to try to burn you? Is he going to do more on his own? Because if not, Booker is going to take on the brunt of that. And I think that to some extent, it kind of looked like there was a comfort level in knowing that, um, that, you know, two on two with a pick and roll, we can kind of guard that. We can take that away. Uh, you're going to give up some threes. Uh, but like you said, the the two-point stuff, uh, like you said earlier, the two-point stuff is, I think, what you normally are afraid of with this team. You take one of those options out of the mix with Chris Paul through foul trouble or whatever else. Um, and there's a, I won't say there's a lot less to be afraid of, but it's certainly not as much. So I think that's kind of what it is. It's just kind of a comfort level with who's not there and how that fundamentally changes the offense. It's why Aiton has to step up more um, because there's – not quite enough to worry about it the same way when Chris Paul's not there with some of the mid-range stuff. I also thought they did a good job mixing up what Luka did on defense when they hunted him and what they did behind Luka. So they didn't give the switch as easily in game four, particularly um, in game, both game three and game four, they didn't give the switch. Sometimes Luka would, would hedge out and the Suns, like I said, proved adept at attacking that. Okay, so if they do that, let's mix it up. Sometimes he would almost, like when Crowder would screen for Paul or Booker, Luke would almost drop as if as if he were a big man, kind of corral the guard and get back to Crowder, which gives the Mavs two choices. Number one, we trust Luka to make that recovery and, and or trust that Crowder will not make enough contested threes from the top of the arc to beat us. Or two, we send a third guy flying at Crowder from the wing and put our defense in rotation. They did both of those things. And again, Phoenix proved up to the challenge of when you send that third guy, we're going to keep moving it with skip passes to, to that guy's player, or Jay's going to drive the closeout and kick and we'll get baskets. And, and so when Dallas saw them getting comfortable, they kind of was like, all right, we'll just go back to more conservative defense. To me, when Booker sees Luka dropping like that, He's just got to go at him. He, the, if you hesitate, if you pull back, if you survey the defense, they're going to crisscross back and they're going to take away your – but if you just go at him, no hesitation, I, I think they can get good looks. But I thought they mixed it up um, really well. And I also think, I, I, again, they run these double picks with Crowder and Aiton. And I get the reasoning. This is becoming a thing in the NBA where I'm going to I'm gonna run a double pick for my, my a staggered screen for my best guy – and the two screeners are going to be my center because he's a he's a center and that's what he does. And if I get that switch, well, then I've got a big man on me. And the other screener is going to be whoever has the weakest defensive player on him. So I have two pretty good options if I switch. When they're running that, Luca's just hanging back being like, all right, you guys, I'm just going to stay with Crowder all down here. You guys, other guys, deal with it. Just just spread the floor and and bring Luca up by himself and see how they, they deal with that. But hmm. – I thought Dallas's defense mixing it up, their effort was really good. You wanted to talk about the Phoenix defense. What did you see from the Phoenix defense? Well, in particular, um, I mean, Luca obviously, <laughs> Luca is like a, a card player. He's just going to keep switching until he gets the hand he wants a lot of times. Um, and there were, I think it was a couple times. It wasn't like it happened over and over again, but I thought it was interesting that when, um, when Phoenix went zone a couple times uh, that he had Aiton at the top of the key where he was kind of the guy on the ball. And I thought it was really clever that Kleba, I think twice during the game, kind of saw what was happening. He looked at who was on the back line of Phoenix's defense. And I think in one instance it was Paul and Booker, if I'm remembering correctly. And so 
instead of normally when you're you've got a zone like that, you're throwing your big guy or somebody that you trust with the ball right at the free throw line. And I thought it was really clever that Kleba went from the wing, basically like the left uh, arc, and he basically kind of just burrowed himself down in all the way into the paint because he realized if I go there, Chris Paul has to guard me because Aiton's the guy at the top of the key. And so Luca threw it into him. And I mean, at that point, you know, Chris Paul's a strong dude. Um, I think, you know, some people kind of um, don't think enough of him in terms of what he can do the same way that people kind of underestimate James Harden as a post defender. But when it's Kleba and, and, and Chris Paul and when it's Luca making a pinpoint pass there and kind of putting Chris Paul in the basket like that, I think there were two separate times that that happened. And it was just kind of a, a really good ID. I think for Luca to be able to do that instead of kind of being wedded to the idea of just breaking guys down off the bounce, um, just basically, you know, and, and also I think it's good ID on Kleba's part instead of waiting for Luca to tell him what to do or where to go or anything like that, just looking at the zone sometime. And I think it, it can be difficult for guys to try to figure out how to take advantage of a space in a zone or a specific defender in a zone. But I thought that it was a really, really smart play. And then I think there was one like that, I think, uh, closer to the beginning of the game. And then there was another instance of it at the end of the game uh, that came up, I think right after uh, Phoenix had pulled their starters. And it was pretty much the, uh, at one point in the game, I think maybe Richard Jefferson had said that that was time of death for, uh, for Phoenix or something. RJ, like that. RJ sort of is so good on these games. It's obnoxious how, how good he is. And, and he called and out, JJ. it's obnoxious, the two of them. I'm really upset yep. about it actually. Um, <laughs> Kleba is the fourth leading scorer for the Mavs in this series. They're plus 11 with him on the floor. Their best lineup, period, is the starters, but with Kleba for Powell. Um, and because of his spacing and, and his defense, he's just proven out. He's 8 of 18 on threes in this series. And one of the things, one of the plays that RJ called out in real time was another really smart play. So you can see, you. this is what, remember what I said about Giannis? Great players freak you out. Games one and two. Phoenix was mostly like, okay, you spread the floor and do the stuff you did against Utah where you drove by all their defenders and got layups. We're going to stay home. If you have campaign on Luka, we might bring a little help. We're going to trust Aiton. We're going to trust freaking Biombo. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna trust guys to go one-on-one. And even against Luka. Cam Johnson, we're mostly going to trust you. We're, you're going to get beat a couple times, which are pretty big. We're mostly going to trust you. Luca has freaked them out that now when he gets a certain switch and they're five out with Kleba, you can see Bridges say, okay, I'm zoning up. We're going to form a two-man wall at the top with Luca having the ball at the top of the arc. And what the Mavs discovered was, okay, you do that. That gives us a four-on-three underneath Luca. And what Kleba did with that is he dipped down, and when Luca started his drive, he nailed essentially both guys with a surprise pick in the lane and Luca got a layup out of it. And you can see Luca gradually getting them out of their comfort zone, gradually saying to Sun saying to themselves, can we really trust each other to, to hold up one-on-one even when we have pretty good matchups? And I also think the Suns just made a lot of uncharacteristic mistakes in, in Dallas. You know, they were at one point they were arguing over a call and Finney Smith just got a three on an out of bounds play. I, I saw was, that. Yep. It was in game three. Luca got a post up against Payne when Payne and Crowder didn't seem to agree on whether they were in man or in zone, and they just screwed up the matchups. Chris Paul went under a screen for Luca. That's a no-no. 
Um, they walked away from Luca on another three where JaVale and somebody else got confused about whether they were switching or not. And Luca was like, oh, no one's guarding me? Sweet. I'll just take a three and make it. Um, but that's, The one he made. The one three he made over the course of the game. He was like one of nine, one of ten, whatever it was. That he didn't even shoot that well, but that's compensated again by Finney Smith and Bertans going sure. crazy. I even thought Bertans' first two threes, Booker just was too cavalier with him. Just like that's – he contested them okay – but that's not a guy you okay contest on. The third one, when Crowder was like in his jersey in the corner, is like, okay, that's how you guard Davis Pertains. He just makes a shot, you tip your cap. The first two, I thought Devin Booker was treating him like an okay to good shooter and not the, the sniper that he is. But those kind of mistakes, that's what happens when a great player begins to make you question your not your schemes, but just sort of makes you a little skittish and uncertain on the floor. And Luca has imposed his will on the series to that degree in game three Brunson quote joined the party like Jason Kidd said and game four Brunson again had a decent game those guys made a lot of threes it just makes you understand like Luca by himself with a decent supporting cast of shooters around him is this dangerous like this series is absolutely in play for the Mavs I'm tip my cap to them I would have bet a lot of money again on Phoenix getting a split I'm super impressed that this is going back to two I still think Phoenix wins the series because I just think they're a little better. But they got to be licking their wounds right now. And I, I, it'll be interesting to see kind of how they come out in game five. And it would be nice if campaign could make a shot. I know that's a small thing. But I don't know. Any, any, anything else strike you? I mean, no. You, you, you kind of put most of it together. Phoenix hasn't lost three games consecutively all year. So, I mean, it's it's a huge game for all sorts of reasons. Obviously, that being one of them that, you know, this is the shakiest footing they've really been on all year. Um, I I really think, looking back on it, the, the other thing I'll say, I'll add this really quickly, um, and it's I think it's accurate with regards to the next series we're going to talk about too. There's that, uh, obviously, second spectrum with the shot quality and all that stuff. And there's a I know there's a Twitter handle now that makes use of some of that data that I think it's called shot quality or something along those lines. And it had this series pretty tight basically where it gives you like a win probability just based on the quality of each team's shot uh shots over the course of the game and i want to say that it had phoenix losing either one of the first two games or both games even though obviously phoenix won the first two just based on the quality of the looks and so it was basically saying those stats were showing that this is a really really competitive first two games to the point where Really, if you were just looking at the shots and nothing else, the quality of the shots that each team was getting, you would have expected this team to win, not this team. And I think the same was true of Philly and Miami. Um, so, you know, we we watched Phoenix blow the roof off of the game in game two. Uh, prior to that, it was a really competitive game. So on some level, maybe it shouldn't surprise us that much if you told us that Chris Paul was basically going to play one half of, you know, one half terribly in game three and then, one half total. I don't know what. Four. It's like his circuitry went haywire. He had one play where right. he had in game three where he had a layup and tried some like lefty hook pass over his head that the Mavs stole and got like, dude, what are you doing? Like you're Chris Paul, you're 30, you're the point guard. Lay the ball like in. Like I said, man, the, the 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 expiration date, you know, maybe it ran out at exactly 37 years old. But but in all seriousness, that you know, if you had been told those things going in with the knowledge of the fact that Dallas was really, really competitive before, um, Dallas more than did its job at home, and now they, you know, they they put some pressure on Phoenix. But I'm really, really looking forward to Game Five of that one. 
They've also taken, again, they did this to Utah. Dallas has taken 57 more threes than Phoenix in this series. Now, it's a Phoenix thing. They take all the mid-rangers and the blah, 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 and they're amazing at them. When you have a bad mid-range game, the math starts to turn against you. I think this is this has been a really fun series. Huge kudos to Dallas. I was totally wrong about what was going to happen in games three and four. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call Click Granger.com or just stop by. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Let's go to Sixers Heat. 2-2 despite an absolutely monstrous performance from Jimmy Butler, um, who had, let me see how many points Jimmy Butler had. I don't know. He had a lot of points. I don't have it up in front of me. 40 points. Another 40 burger. I don't know. When when did we start calling everything burgers? Another 40 burger (laughs) for Jimmy Butler. 46 and two, two steals, two blocks. Even when it went at around over through Joel Embiid on switches. And even when Joel was his actual primary matchup. Um, Look, I'm not... Surprised. I, I talked with Jeff Van Gundy in previewing this series before Embiid's injury, and we both said we kind of like this matchup for Philly. Um, I don't know how they're going to guard Embiid. I don't love the idea of switching all the time and giving him the Tucker matchup and the Butler matchup, which is the whole point of putting those guys on on Maxi and Harden, respectively. And the Sixers found creative ways over and around those fronts, particularly in Game 4. And Unlike against the Raptors, particularly when Fred Van Vliet was out, James Harden's going to have someone he's comfortable going at pretty much every possession on the floor. If you put Struess in that in that category, and maybe you don't, maybe you do. I think he's pretty comfortable with Struess. And James Harden, I've, I've hit him pretty hard on his performance in high-leverage playoff games. He reversed that narrative last night, big time in great. Game yes, 4. He was fantastic. Yeah. Um, he had... 31 points on 18 field goal attempts, 9 free throws, 6 of 10 from 3. Obviously, everything changes when he's hitting step-back threes with Bam and Victor Oladipo in his jersey. Uh, got by, guys, off the dribble. Even Bam got Bam a couple times uh, when Bam gave him his right hand and he took it. Uh, I, I I ended up picking Heat in 7 once the Embiid news came out. I, I kind of assumed he would miss more than 2 games and that he would be a little more limited when he came back. Even Me that, too. I thought, was was pretty generous to Philly and showed how much faith I had in them to make this a series because I, that was me saying, if he misses three games, I still think they can take it to the limit. I, I don't know who's winning this series anymore, but nothing about what happened in Philly with Embiid back surprises me other than just how good he looks. I, I kind of assumed he might be a little more tentative than than he than he's been. Um, and And – it's just sad to watch Kyle Lowry, who's clearly playing on one leg and had six points in two games and doesn't want to yeah. shoot and can't exert his will on the game. 
Um, you can blame this on shot quality, like like you said. You know, Philly shot 32 of 66 on threes in Philly. Miami shot 14 of 65. The shot quality says they were almost equal shot quality-wise. I actually thought Philly made all of Struess's looks pretty difficult. And if you can make all of Struess's looks and Hero's looks pretty difficult, and the Hero got a couple open ones, and you're giving the more open ones to Butler and Oladipo and Tucker, I think that's pretty good defense. Um, I, I don't know what Miami is going to do in game five. I have a feeling we're going to see Duncan Robinson dust it off again because of how badly they're shooting. I don't know yeah. what they're going to do with the Lowry thing, but nothing about this surprises me. And I think we might be going the distance now. Yeah. Um, the, I'll bring up the part that you just raised because that was going to be my question too, is, um, when you're shooting, I, I know I, I can't remember what they finished at, but I know at one point they were like five of 31 from three. It's a little bit weird to see that happen and to know that you've got, you know, one of the two, three best shooters in the league on your bench. Now, granted, for all sorts of reasons, you're you're benching him uh, and Duncan Robinson. Um, but when you're struggling that hard from outside um, to have a guy that can open up the defense a little bit, um, hopefully not open up your own defense too much. I understand that. But, you know, even if just for spurts, I mean, their offense just looks kind of rough. Obviously, that was one of the question marks about this team, um, you know, particularly on a night if Jimmy has to sit out like he did earlier in the playoffs. Um, he can't play you know, 48 minutes, man. He played 42 minutes, and, you know, they lose the early fourth quarter minutes when Embiid is on the bench. That was and, huge. And in these last two games – they're plus 13 with Embiid on the floor and plus 15 with Embiid on the bench. I call their best non-Embiid lineups. In my notes, I just write kitchen sink because they throw the whole kitchen sink. Everything they've got left, Maxi, Harden, Tobias, we need you all out there to survive these minutes. Right. And the kitchen sink lineups, one with Green and one Niang, with Niang in green spot, are plus, let me see, I have it here somewhere, plus 19 in 40 minutes for the playoffs with Paul Reed at center. And yeah. by the way, look, Doc Rivers forgot more about basketball yesterday than I will know in my entire life. Miss me, as the kids say, miss me with any further condescension when reporters ask you why DeAndre Jordan is playing. Because they were right and you were wrong and you chastise them for even daring to ask the question. It's one thing to be like, hey, I disagree with you, blah, blah. I know DJ this and that. That's cool. Don't act like I'm a moron for asking the question. And by the way, he's not playing and now you're winning. So, but my point about Butler was he's on the bench in those minutes too. And I find myself being like, man, I wish I could play Jimmy in those minutes when Embiid rests, but like, I, I can't play him the whole game. If I play him in those minutes, I'm going to play him in minutes when Embiid's on the floor. Is it, is it healthy that I feel like I can't survive a second without Jimmy Butler on the floor? Especially when, like you said, Jimmy's fronting him so much of the time, which that exhausts somebody. Um, not to mention that even when you know with one of your best guys trying to do that, um, James Harden was having a good game before he even really went off from a scoring standpoint because he was making them pay when they were trying to front Joel Embiid. Um, where he threw, I mean, one of the first passes of the game, he threw in to to Embiid it was just a beautiful pass. Well, and the way they lift were... up, they lift up all the other players, so there's nobody even in a corner. There's three guys on one side and one guy lifted up, and there's no backline help. That was clearly scripted 
And it only didn't work when Thibault was in the game and they felt like they could swarm off Thibault to the point that I wonder if they should just set, separate Thibault and Embiid completely for that reason. But yeah, to your point, Harden's, Harden's playmaking is just continuously underrated. It's the big reason why he's got to have the ball more than Maxi, even as, as great as it looks when Maxi roasts P.J. Tucker on switches. He can't pass like Harden can pass. They're not even in the same universe. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that was really the the biggest takeaway. I mean, there are a couple of names you mentioned that were really key here. Niang, uh, certainly with how much he struggled at times throughout the playoffs, even just being passable decent yesterday was huge. But obviously Danny Green was, was a huge factor. And they cannot find Danny Green. Uh, he's playing hide and seek out there with his little – this guy, he, he is one of the most inventive cutters in the history of basketball. To the point that Miami actually nicknamed, as we've talked about before, I think, nicknamed a cut that Danny Green would do with the Spurs, the Danny Green cut, because they had never seen it before. It was when he would cut from the weak side corner where a shooter is supposed to be to the strong side corner during a pick and roll, and he's still doing these little sneaky moonwalks along the baseline. They cannot find him, man. It's like they turn around like Danny Green's over there for another. He had, what did he have? I think he was 9 of 13 on threes or 10 of 13 on threes in these two games. Woo! Which before that, I think it was like two of 14 or something like that. So shoot or I mean, shoot, baby. So that is just a huge shift in the series. But that stuff aside, which is huge, obviously we know about Embiid. But I think the, the realization I had for at least now is that, you know, I'd written about it. We've, we've all talked about it as far as how, you know, if Billy's going to do anything in the series, this would be a great time for James Harden to step up. I think what we've learned, at least for now, is that. Embiid has to be present to be able to unlock even some of the stuff that we were hoping to see from Harden. Um, because just, I mean, and we saw it was true of, you know, like look at the game that Chicago played against Milwaukee when Levine was out. Uh, just how much they loaded up on DeRozan. My brain erased that entire series. It's gone. I don't, I have no memory <laughs> left of that series. I, There's probably I, good reason for that. But my, my, my only point, my whole point is that Great players, hindered, healthy, regardless, they are going to look so different when a team can just literally say, we don't give a damn about anybody else on the court but you. They load up three people on you. You're not going to be able to get to the basket. When you can't get to the basket and your step back hasn't been working for months, really, it's a pretty easy cover. Even as great as James Harden might be on 75 80% of whatever he's playing at. With them bead there, it's just opened up so much more. So it was really good to see him break out that way. It's obviously a series at this point. Um, I've got tons of questions about Miami, the Lowry one being a key one. Oladipo, even though he didn't shoot well yesterday, still was able to get to the line. And obviously you saw them trying to make him work as the point guard uh, because of how much Lowry was laboring. Um, how much more can you realistically get out of him for a guy that wasn't even really in their rotation um, before this series all that much? It, it it's going to be a, a, a nail-biter of a series. But Philly, I mean, it's crazy to go from being down 2-0, obviously without, you know, your best player, one of the best players in the world, to all of a sudden, you know, maybe having more questions about the team that initially took the 2-0 lead. Um, but that's kind of what it looks like, honestly. Well, I mean, I kept saying this in every medium. Like, I, I said it I, most forcefully, I think, on NBA Today last week. For all the hand-wringing about Harden's, how he doesn't have a burst and this and that, and I've been part of that. I kept saying this. 
The Harden and Bede pick and roll has been completely unstoppable. It's been the best pick and roll in the NBA since the Sixers acquired Harden, despite the fact that Harden, for the most part, hasn't been able to score like peak Harden. It's just a completely dominant play because if you give Embiid the ball between the foul line and the dotted line with any space, it's over. He doesn't need to dunk it like Capella. It's a floater. It's a layup. It's a one euro step and a dunk. It's done. And you can't switch it. And I just don't know what they're going to do because I don't think switching – your defense just has to be perfect if you're going to switch P.J. Tucker and Jimmy Butler in front. It's just it's just so hard to defend like that over and over. And you could see Embiid starting to think about counters. Like, all right, you're going to front me down here. I'll come up to the nail and just face up. And these guys can't guard me here. If I face up at the nail, I'm just one dribble. You're going to swipe down and foul me. I mean – he had the play yesterday where he did something like that where um I'm trying to remember he turned but like did like a half turn and finished with this right on the left side of the bat. Like it's just so skilled. The footwork is so good. And I I, I think there is something to be said for I didn't, you know, I, I saw some people saying I wonder whether his conditioning will be an issue. I didn't worry about that because he was really only out for a week, maybe even less than that, as far as how long it was before he got back on a court. But you know, the injuries that he's dealing with between the thumb and obviously the the orbital bone and everything else. Like, that's all stuff where I wouldn't mind. I, I wouldn't be surprised if someone shies away a little bit from contact. If anything, you know, Embiid had that really uh, hard foul, not dirty by any means, but the hard foul on Hero at one point where, like, he's inflicting the the physicality uh, still. To your, to your you point know. on limbs hitting things that they're not intended to hit, he, he even got flagrantly fouled Jimmy Butler, and those two are as as thick as thieves, as the saying goes. Yeah. He enjoy, they love each yeah. other, and Joel clubbed him on the head by accident. Um, yeah. But also, like, man, so he got those touches at the nail, and then, bam, when they stopped switching, tried to deny him, and that was like... I, they were like playing a whole different sport, the two of them together. It was like the two of them were playing <laughs> rugby up and down the floor uh, trying trying to deny Joel. But the possession I booked, Mark, was they kept – there was one possession where Joel was like, all right, you're going to front me down here. I'm coming up to the nail. And they fronted him at the nail, right? So they're still fronting him. And Harden saw that and did the thing that I talked about with Draymond. He just drove right around the front. And then he could have probably gotten to the rim, but then Tobias back cut somebody and he hit Tobias for a back cut dunk. Tobias Harris, by the way, the unsung hero of the playoffs for the Sixers. 18 a game on 52% shooting, 38% from three, 60% on twos. Quick decisions and making enough of those just burrow, burrow, burrow. I don't really like where this is going. Rise up for a 14-footer. Making enough of those when Embiid is on the bench to just keep you treading water. And and he's been their unsung hero. Yeah, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is to Embiid defensively. I, the answer is always to mix it up, but they, they're going to be ready for this fronting stuff. And I don't, I just, Miami's going to play a lot of zone. We'll see how that goes. I think Philly's starting five has, has enough shooting around Joel. And, and when they introduce Thibault or Shake Milton, that gets out of whack a little bit. But this is going to be a, this is going to be a tough series. Note. No, I took that same note. It was literally the last thing I wrote down. I, I don't know if there's one play that made me think it, but I, I literally wrote down, watching Philly shift a series with shooting. What a thought. You know, the idea of that, but also doing it against a team that, um, you know, that has shooters that, you know, that again, for the time being, at least for now, we'll see if it's the case in game uh, in game five as Duncan Robinson on the bench, you know, and, 
it, it's just something to see, you know, with all the stuff we've talked about for years about how badly Philly needed spacing. Uh, now, obviously, none of it works if Embiid is not there. Nothing does. Um, but watching them uh, over the course of this series, watching Danny Green, watching Niang hit a couple shots, um, and and watching the rest of the guys they have out there and Harden being able to knock down his shots. Um, yeah, it, it it works. It's nice to see it full strength or, you know, at, at least full strength now, now that Embiid is back. Yeah, I mean, it was a dominant performance at home from Philly. You know, you can sit here and say, well, it seemed like kind of a slog for both teams. Philly had 116 points per 100 possessions over those two games. That's like the number one offense in the NBA. They held uh, Miami to 100 points per 100 possessions. That's like the number 30 offense in, in the NBA, plus 28 over two games. It was just it was a dominant performance. And look, you get 61 combined from Butler and Bam. You should win. Like that's you just need something. From you need some of those true shots to go in. He only took five shots in 30 minutes. Lowry obviously was a, was a zero. Um, Hero four of 12, 11 points. They're just going to need to make threes. The Heat are a three point shooting machine. They take tons of threes. They're not going to win the series unless they get more threes and get them to go in. And that's like the third option in their offense is sort of like roving three point shooting. And they just haven't been able to generate enough of that. And by the way, I think Harden's been engaged on defense too the last two games. He's been helping off of Tucker, particularly when Tucker is like when they run those Struess handoff plays off of Bam to get Struess open threes. They've been able to contain those plays because Joel will show out a little bit knowing Harden's got my back if P.J. Tucker's on the strong side. They need to put P.J. Tucker somewhere else and Harden's helping and recovering. Like their defense has just been really sound. I thought Miami, like Phoenix, made some kind of uncharacteristic mistakes on defense but again that's what happens when you're facing great players and they're they're kind of in your head a little bit yeah I'm, I'm interested to see whether um they can do anything they may not need to do anything it could just be the hero had an off game but uh a little bit more to get him going because they're, they're gonna have to do something to amplify the shooting whether it's bringing in duncan robinson which is not something you're probably looking forward to doing when you've had problems trying to slow down billy uh, adding him to the mix does probably not help you slow down Philly. We all know that. But um, like you said, the three-point shooting is just such a big part of the identity that if you if it's going to be what it was, where you're asking Jimmy Butler to carry you on the way to a 40-point game and you're still losing, um, that there's got to be a healthier diet of, of three-pointers in there. Um, so whether it's kind of running double double screens for Hero to try to get him open, uh, like you said, he had a couple open shots that he just didn't put down um, that you expect him to make. But it'll be interesting to see what the adjustment is. Uh, the fronting, the, the the fronting is not gonna get it done here. I I would not bet on them to win the series if uh, if there's not gonna be more of a mix or less of a emphasis on that. Just because it just kind of seemed like Embiid's too strong. Embiid's gonna go up and catch the ball, and then once he catches it, you're not gonna stop him at the rim. Um, or that he'll, you know, if he catches the ball, even if he doesn't want to go up, he's going to find a teammate that's wide open. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what – I think they'll just have to mix it up more. Maybe they switch less and just defend him straight up and see what, what the guards can do against that. Maybe they play zone more. I just – offensively, I think – it's not low-hanging fruit, but I, I don't think they've gone right at Harden or Maxi enough. Philly, off and on, they were better at this in game four. 
is just giving them those switches, is giving Jimmy Butler James Harden, giving Jimmy Butler Tyrese Maxey. All you have to do is set a, not even a real screen, just run and set a fake pick. And a lot of times they've been giving those switches, and I just don't think Miami has just said, okay, we'll, we'll take it, and then Butler will go one-on-one. Now, that's sometimes that's his game. Sometimes Jimmy doesn't want to play that way. He'll go into a pick-and-roll instead of instead of just going one-on-one. I, I just feel like there's a, there are a few points to scrounge out there, but this is going to be a war, man. This is going to be – I just wish Morant were healthy and could play tonight. Yeah. And we don't know yet. It's a, it's 8 a.m. on the West Coast right I'm, now, so who knows? I'm holding out a little bit of hope. I, I don't get the impression. You you had said before that you know there was a part of you, the cynic in you, that was like, is Taylor Jenkins saying this about his injury to – you know basically to try to, to generate a suspension from the league for Jordan Poole? Obviously, I don't think either one of us thinks that he was doing it for that reason. But when you look at the way that the Sixers were kind of handling the Joel Embiid thing, and then what was it? Which which player was it like a week ago or whenever it was that another team did the same thing where they kind of Booker. listed somebody as out? And um, yeah, you're right. It was it was it was Jimmy. So I, I there's a part of me that would like to see um, that happen not a part of me i would love to see that happen it is interesting though that teams are starting to do that and just taking the fine instead of kind of you know laying out what it seems like is going to happen from an injury reporting standpoint uh where you list a guy's out or questionable or whatever it is when you kind of know that they're going to play booker was the guy i said well, Jimmy. it's um, kind of a problem if we're all going to end up making our money based on sports gambling proceeds, kind of everybody a except you and me. That Every, people... Everybody except you and me. <laughs> no, well, maybe indirectly we will. I don't know, but it's it's kind of a problem <laughs> that gamblers are like can't make these decisions with certainty. But look, if Morant plays tonight, I I, I don't I, who knows. I'm just saying, if the Grizzlies somehow found a way to win tonight, we could be looking at four seven game series in the second round, which is just basically. I take <laughs> just just gloriousness. Um, I, I I think the Warriors will win tonight, so we'll have, you know, less chance of that. But this has been a fun round. I think these series, it, for series that have arrived at game four, in particular the, the two that are resuming Tuesday, it feels like there's still a lot. Part of that is because of Embiid joining halfway through. It just feels like there's a lot of territory still to mine. Like we haven't reached the critical point in every series where like all the adjustments have been made. Everybody knows what's coming, and it's just you, me, our best stuff. Let's go. It feels like every series still has a lot of room to move around, which is which is cool and unusual. Chris Herring, what, what can we look for from you? What should we look for? Other than everyone needs to buy his book, which is already a New York Times bestseller, so maybe nobody needs to buy it. I don't know. People should say, if you haven't bought it, buy it. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Uh, I have a newsletter that runs every week called The Playmaker, which comes out on Tuesdays, so that'll – be out um i guess we're recording this monday so it'll be out tomorrow and then i i co-host uh, open floor at sports illustrated with michael pina and ron nadkerty so it's in my it's in my rotation it's in my peloton rotation um appreciate depend, you man. depending on the topics and you know your level of involvement if you're not on it i'll just hit it every time play you know if you're if you're on it <laughs> just skip uh chris herring <laughs> absolutely must read must listen congrats on everything and enjoy the rest of this round Thanks so much, buddy. I look forward to seeing you sometime soon.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.